Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa. This podcast will look at a variety of issues surrounding the phenomenon of terrorism, both here in Canada and around the world. It'll be available every two weeks, once a fortnight, even though this discussion has nothing to do with the popular online video game Fortnite. Perhaps if I did a podcast on Fortnite, uh, the game I mean, I'd get a much bigger audience. In this podcast, we'll examine trends, attacks, counterterrorism efforts, and other aspects of a topic that has seized the imaginations and fears of many in our societies. The unfortunate truth is that there's a lot of terrorism out there and no end of matters to talk about. But before we get into this session's topic, maybe it would be a good idea to outline why this podcast, among many others, is worth listening to. One thing is certainly true. There are a ton of articles, books, and journal entries available, and it can be hard to decide which ones to read, as well as whose opinion to follow and see as informative. If there's one label that has expanded to the point where it is almost meaningless, it is the word expert, and this is why I prefer not to use it. So who am I, and why might my perspectives on terrorism be of interest to listeners? Well, my story is a simple one, and my views on terrorism come from a particular place. I'm a retired Canadian intelligence analyst, having spent more than three decades in the spy business. I worked from July of 1983 to the end of 2000 at Communications Security Establishment, CSE, Canada's Signals Intelligence Agency, as a multilingual analyst specializing in the Middle East and Asia. In 2001, I moved to CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, as a strategic analyst specializing in terrorism, and more specifically, Islamist extremism. I had access to intelligence on all CSIS investigations on homegrown jihadi terrorism from 2001 to 2013, and developed a deep understanding on the process of radicalization to violence. In 2013, I transferred to the National Security Department at Public Safety Canada, the mothership, so to speak, for agencies such as CSIS and the RCMP. I participated in many outreach sessions across Canada, seeking to discuss terrorism and radicalization with communities in a large number of Canadian cities. After my retirement from the public service in 2015, I was hired as a consultant by the Provincial Anti-Terrorism Section, or PATS, at the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, a position I held until the end of 2015. That year, I also founded my own consulting firm, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Since 2015, I have authored five books on terrorism, The Threat from Within, Recognizing Al-Qaeda-Inspired Radicalization and Terrorism in the West, that was in 2015, Western Foreign Fighters, The Threat to Homeland and International Security in 2017, The Lesser Jihads, Bringing the Islamist Extremist Fight to the World, also in 2017, and An End to the War on Terrorism in 2018, all published by Roman and Littlefield. I have also almost published When Religion Kills, How Extremists Justify Violence Through Faith, to be published later on this year by Lynn Reiner. I've also written close to a thousand blogs on terrorism, all available on my website, 
www.borealisthreatenedrisk.com. Over the course of my career, both within and outside the Canadian government, I have delivered thousands of presentations, keynote addresses, and training sessions to audiences in Canada and throughout the world. I've also been interviewed thousands of times on terrorism and intelligence subjects for Canadian and other media, and I pen a weekly column on terrorism for The Hill Times, Canada's parliamentary newspaper. So I have a lot of experience in terrorism, and I keep thinking about it. That being said, there's a lot that I do not know, and I'm happy to admit I'm still learning. This podcast is part of that process. I want to share some of my views on terrorism, and I'd love to hear what you think. Details on how to contact me will be provided at the end and are available in the description section of this podcast. In these podcasts, I hope to develop a bi-weekly theme. Some of the topics will be very topical, while others will deal with larger issues surrounding what we think about terrorism in addition to what is happening on terrorist fronts around the world. Later in each session, I will feature some of the most important or most interesting terrorism-related stories from the previous two weeks. One last thing before we launch into this, the meat of this episode. A little on the theme song, Superman, by Five for Fighting. Vladimir John Ondrasik is the guy behind Five for Fighting, an American who chose the name because he's a hockey fan. And as a Canadian, I love that. Superman became the unofficial song for all first responders after 9-11. One of the lyrics goes, It may sound absurd, but don't be naive. Even heroes have a right to bleed. This podcast is therefore dedicated to all the men and women in our security intelligence, law enforcement, and other agencies that have a role in preventing terrorism. Thanks to all. I'd also like to thank the folks at Continuity Link, www.continuitylink.com, for their help in creating this podcast, and especially Jean-Baptiste Pelangoulet for his invaluable technical assistance. So, let's begin our journey together, shall we? For this initial chat, I thought it'd be a good idea to cite Mary Poppins to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. If this is to be a podcast on terrorism, we might want to come to some common understanding on what we mean by terrorism. You may be surprised to learn that there is actually very little consensus on the term. As a colleague of mine at the Netherlands-based International Center for Counterterrorism, Alex Schmidt, once discovered, there are at least 100 definitions of terrorism. We don't have the time or the need to look at all 100, but it might help to demonstrate some of the variation out there. I was struck the other day by a letter to the editor of my local newspaper, the Ottawa Citizen, where a resident, in noting the disrespect motorists have for speed limits or road signs such as those designating school zones, suggested we call these bad drivers road terrorists. Road terrorists. Now, when I think of the term road terrorist, my mind goes to the tactic of using vehicles, trucks, cars, etc., to run down and kill or maim pedestrians, an all-too-frequent occurrence these days. We've seen attacks in, in Berlin at a Christmas market in 2016, in Barcelona in Las Ramblas area in 2017, on the Westminster Bridge in London also in 2017, uh, in Nice, France on Bastille Day in July of 2016, and even Alec Manassian in Toronto in April 2018, an attack 
I will return to in a bit. I don't see bad drivers as terrorists, do you? Here's another frivolous use of the term. In the wake of the signing of a new head coach for the legendary British football team Manchester United, African headlines screamed that the team would terrorize its opponents with its aggressive attacking style. Footballers as terrorists? I think not. And finally, to cite one more example, there are lots of things that terrorize some of us. Heights, public speaking, first dates, spiders, snakes, sharks, a guy doing his first podcast. No one would certainly suggest that sharks or podcasters are terrorists. For some, any group that terrorizes others must be a terrorist group. Gangs terrorize neighborhoods in many cities around the world, and their actions are indeed violent and worrisome. In some Central American cities, murder rates are amongst the highest seen. So are gangs composed of terrorists? All this is to say that there really is no agreement on what constitutes terrorism and what does not. That makes a podcast on terrorism hard to organize. So in the interest of narrowing the field of discussion to a reasonable extent, I'd like to propose a definition of terrorism, one that I will use in deciding what to talk about. And I'd like to start with what the law says. I know laws don't make the most interesting reading, but they can provide insight into how our governments view the problem. After all, if states want to prosecute terrorists, they have to know what they're prosecuting, no? In this vein, I will cite what I'm most familiar with, the Canadian Criminal Code. Terrorism is covered starting in section 83.1 and reads as follows. Actually, the code defines terrorist activity and not terrorism per se. Here's what the code says about terrorist activity. It is an act in or outside Canada that is committed in whole or in part for a religious, political, or ideological purpose, objective, or cause, and which is performed with the intention of intimidating the public or compelling a person to do or to refrain from doing any act. And it intentionally causes death or serious bodily harm to a person, endangers a person's life, causes a serious risk to the health or safety of the public, causes substantial property damage, or causes serious interference with or serious disruption of an essential service but is not linked to advocacy, protest, dissent, or stoppage of work. And the text goes on and on and on. I think you get the idea. What I think is important are two main issues, death or serious harm, whether actual or planned, and the so-called motivation clause, a political, religious, or ideological purpose, objective, or cause. Of course, there are still challenges, even with this summary. What constitutes ideology? How do you demonstrate that an act was carried out for that reason? Do you need the terrorist to leave a manifesto? A statement? A video? It is sometimes not as easy as people think, as we shall discuss below. For comparison purposes, here are what other nations or organizations see as terrorism. In the U.S., It is the unlawful use of force and violence against persons or property to intimidate or coerce a government, the civilian population, in furtherance of political or social objectives. 
The EU states that terrorism are serious offenses against persons and property that, given their nature, may seriously damage a country with the aim of intimidating a population or compelling a government to perform or abstain from performing any act and destabilizing or destroying the fundamental political, constitutional, economic, or social structures of that country. NATO says that terrorism is the unlawful use or threatened use of force or violence against individuals and property to coerce or intimidate governments to achieve political, religious, or ideological objectives. That's very close to the Canadian definition. And finally, the UN says similar things, but ends off by saying that terrorism is driven by considerations of a political, philosophical, ideological, racial, ethnic, religious, or other similar nature. Wow, what a a variety of definitions. Is it any wonder we cannot agree on what terrorism is? Meaning, do we we can't have a universal meaning? Let's muddy the waters further. Several nations also have what are known as terrorist entity listings, legal documents which label certain groups as terrorist organizations. It is illegal to belong to or aid these groups, and, one assumes, any serious act of violence committed by a member of such a group would by definition be an act of terrorism. Here's the problem. The listings are subject to political pressures. For example, the anti-Iranian regime Mujahideen Khalq, also known as the People's Mujahideen, was once listed in Canada as a terrorist entity, but removed after lobbying efforts by the group and its supporters. Furthermore, not all countries agree on which groups to put on these lists. Wait, there's more to consider. States can decide to label legitimate dissent as terrorism, which is what is happening in Nicaragua right now. Anti-government protests have led to violent state reaction and what appear to be execution-style murders. Don't get me wrong. No country can tolerate the burning of government buildings as has occurred in Nicaragua. But are all protesters terrorists? Totalitarian regimes regularly dismiss any opposition movements as terrorists. And let's not go down the rabbit hole of one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. One more thing. What is the difference between terrorism and hate crime? Let me give you a few recent examples from Canada to illustrate this conundrum. In June 2014, 24-year-old Justin Bork killed three and wounded two RCMP officers in Moncton, New Brunswick. He claimed that his actions were a rebellion of sorts against the Canadian government, which he believed to be oppressive. He stated that he believed that police officers were protecting such a government. At trial, he pleaded guilty to three counts of first-degree murder and two counts of attempted murder. In January 2017, Alexandre Bissonnette entered a mosque in Quebec City and opened fire, killing six and wounding 19. He pleaded guilty to six counts of first-degree murder and six accounts of attempted murder. And finally, in April 2018, Alec Manassian drove a van down Young Street in Toronto, killing 10 and wounding 19. He has been charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder and 13 counts of attempted murder. In a Facebook posting prior to his attack, he seemed to suggest he was an incel, a term to refer to men who are involuntary celibate, 
i.e. sexually frustrated misogynists. So we have a man who wanted to start a rebellion to overthrow the government, one who hated Muslims, and one with sexual frustrations. Did any do what they did for ideological, political, or religious reasons? Great questions, and ones that are yet to be resolved. For the record, none were charged with terrorism, a topic I should refer, return to in a future blog. Confused? I'm not surprised. Terrorism is a contentious term, one that evokes strong emotional responses. I fear we will never get to a compromise on what it actually means. That puts a podcast on terrorism on shaky footing. In the interest, then, of having some leg to stand on, I will use the following criteria in deciding what to call terrorism. You do not have to agree with me, but at least you know where I'm coming from. For the purposes of our discussions, then terrorism will be defined as, drumroll please, any act or threatened act of serious violence planned or carried out in the furtherance of a demonstrable cause or goal that is political, religious, or ideological in nature. Feel free to come up with your own version. I'd love to hear your views. This, then, is the topic of the podcast. Anything to do with terrorism and how we respond to it. There is no shortage of aspects to talk about, as future podcasts will show. I'd like to add that if there's any particular issue you'd like me to weigh in on, please let me know. You can reach me via email, borealisrisk at gmail.com, on Twitter, at Borealis Saves, on LinkedIn, or on Facebook. I cannot promise that I will get to your ideas right away, but I can promise that I certainly will consider them. Before I leave you, I want to end with what I hope will be a regular feature of this podcast, a summary of the world of terrorism over the past two weeks. In any given 14-day period, there are usually too many events to cover. In fact, there is on average several attacks or attempted attacks somewhere in the world every day. Most people don't hear about them unless they are particularly catastrophic or occur in a high-profile Western country. This list will not be exhaustive, however. I will select what I feel are the most important and or interesting events over that period and provide some comments on them. This episode's list runs from December 17th to 31st, 2018. I rely on open sources for this information. Some come from well-known news sites such as the BBC and the New York Times. Others come from local media less well exposed in the West. Where possible, I try to corroborate attacks from multiple sources. Casualty counts are as accurate as I can determine at the time of the podcast. It takes a lot of time to monitor terrorist events around the world, several hours per day in fact, but I cannot ensure that some inaccurate information may find its way into the reporting I use. What is important, as far as I'm concerned, is not the precise nature and scope of terrorist incidents, but what they say about larger trends and developments. So here we go. I want to start this episode's overview with a rare event, a successful attack in Morocco. That North American country is not immune to terrorism by any stretch of the imagination. Many Moroccans travel to, to Iraq and Syria to fight with groups like Islamic State and Moroccan security services regularly thwart planned attacks. But on December the 17th, the bodies of two Scandinavian female tourists, 24-year-old Louisa Vesteraga Jesperson from Denmark and 28-year-old Maren Uland from Norway, 
were recovered in a remote area of Morocco. A video surfaced in which men are shown slitting the throat of one of the women while stating, this is a revenge for our brothers in Hajin, an apparent reference to the Islamic State in Syria. Four men, later arrested by Moroccan police, were discovered to have pledged allegiance to Islamic State. More arrests were made later. By the end of the year, a total of 15 suspects have been seized and brought before a judge. I could be wrong, but this is, this is the first successful attack by anyone tied to Islamic State in Morocco. If I am wrong, I'm sure that someone will let me know. Some Moroccans have created a petition on change.org calling on Morocco's Ministry of Justice to give the murderers of the two Scandinavian women near Mount Tukbal the death penalty, calling it the right penalty for such a horrible crime. One more note on the use of beheading by terrorist groups. Many resort to this gruesome way of killing hostages. The question is why? I don't think other terrorist movements are nearly as adept at this, so why the jihadis? Aside from the horrific nature of the act itself, there is another fundamental reason. Islamist extremists see themselves as prototypical and perfect Muslims. They reject any other way of practicing the Islamic faith, and this is why so many, in fact the majority, of their victims are fellow Muslims, whom they see as apostates for not kowtowing to the extremist interpretation of Islam that they follow. As such, they want to return Islam to its roots in the 7th century, Arabia, and ban any changes since that time. They call this bida, that's the word in Arabic. And what was the capital punishment of choice in that era? Beheadings, of course. Jihadis are emulating what they see as original and right. Speaking of beheadings, what other state, a supposed ally in the struggle against terrorism, avails itself of that particular punishment? Hmm, why Saudi Arabia, naturally. You can bet the mortgage that I will devote a future podcast to whether or not the kingdom is really on our side. On December the 18th, Italian police announced they had arrested a 20-year-old Somali man the previous week on suspicion of planning to bomb several churches in Rome, including St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The man, identified as Omar Moshin Ibrahim, was arrested in the southern port city of Bari and had been under surveillance by police for a month. The Vatican represents a key enemy for Islamist extremists, as it is the center of the Roman Catholic Church. Jihadis often use the term crusaders when referring to Christians, and regularly call for attacks against them. A successful attack at St. Peter's, always filled with tourists and the devout, could have been catastrophic. Staying with the theme of attacks on Christians, the Egyptian government announced on December the 20th that security forces had killed eight militants and detained four more who were planning attacks on Coptic Christians during the upcoming holiday season. In a statement, the Interior Ministry said the 12 belonged to Hassam, an armed faction of the Muslim Brotherhood, which Cairo considers to be a terrorist organization. The ministry added that two of the eight killed were separately shot dead after they opened fire on security forces, storming two residences in Cairo. The remaining six were killed in a shootout as they tried to flee the capital. On December 20th, a Cairo criminal court handed a death sentence to an Islamic State-affiliated man who killed a Christian doctor in his clinic in Shubra. 
The killing took place in September of 2017 when Hassan Zakaria requested to see the doctor, pretending to be a patient. He stabbed the doctor and then a nurse that intervened to try to stop the attack. He was caught red-handed, literally, carrying a blade as he attempted to run away. For good measure, Egyptian authorities announced they would raise security levels to maximum alert in preparation for Coptic Christian festivities and possible attacks in the Sinai Peninsula. The alert was to remain in place until January the 7th, 2019. Recall that during Christmas celebrations in 2016, an explosion planned by Islamic State near the main Coptic cathedral in Cairo killed 29 people and injured tens of others. And on December 28th, an IED exploded as a tour bus carrying Vietnamese travelers near the iconic Giza period, Giza Pyramid, killing two and wounding 12. Only two passengers escaped unscathed. Egyptian forces retaliated by killing 40 terrorists the following day. The attack is another blow to Egypt's tourism industry, which has seesawed since 2010, dropping from a high of 14 million visitors in 2010 to less than 5 million in 2016. The Karnak Temple in Luxor was attacked as recently as 2015 when an attempted suicide bomber was killed by police. No tourist died in that incident. Nevertheless, the Egyptian government put a positive spin on the security situation in the country at year's end. In a report entitled 2018, Terrorism is Dying in Egypt, the government noted that there were only eight attacks in the most recent 12-month period compared with 50 in 2017 and 199 in 2016. In Somalia, on December 21st, the terrorist group Al-Shabaab, which has been active since 2006, declared war on its rival, an Islamic State affiliate in that country. In a radio address, a spokesperson said, We have given them a chance to change, but they have continued their wrongheadedness. Our senior command has ordered our fighters to attack and eliminate the quote-unquote disease of Islamic State. The Al-Shabaab campaign has been called disease eradication. The spokesperson also accused the movement of quote-unquote spoiling the ongoing jihad in Somalia. Despite the new focus on Islamic State, al-Shabaab continued its campaign of violence elsewhere in Somalia. On December 22nd, a pair of powerful car, car bombs exploded near the presidential palace in Mogadishu, killing 15 people and wounding another 15. On December 24th, an employee of the Somali Ministry of Religious Affairs was killed by al-Shabaab terrorists in apparent retaliation for the government's execution of one of the terrorist group's senior bomb makers who'd been found guilty of three car bombs in Mogadishu in 2017 that had killed 26 people. Eight soldiers were killed when al-Shabaab tried to overrun a military base in southwestern Somalia on December 29th. The battle lasted six hours as the terrorists attacked the facility from four directions, according to a Somali army spokesman. The Somali National Army was able to kill 14 terrorists during the siege. The base in question has been a regular target for al-Shabaab over the years and was even briefly occupied and destroyed by the terrorist group on several occasions. Lastly, on December the 31st, the Somali National Army claimed it had killed 30 al-Shabaab terrorists in the southern town of Jalib. 
On December 26th, the Indian National Investigation Agency, NIA, busted an Islamic State cell in Delhi and Uttar Pradesh that had been planning a string of terror attacks targeting politicians, key locations, and crowded places. Ten men were arrested in total. The investigation into the cell had been going on for three to four months. In December 2017, a report by the Ministry of Home Affairs had said that the the NIA had arrested 103 accused in cases against Islamic State cadres, most of whom were taken in Uttar Pradesh, which seems to be a particularly lucrative zone for Islamic State-affiliated terrorists in India. India, of course, is no stranger to terrorism and extremism. In addition to Islamic State and Al-Qaeda-linked cells, the country is faced with a continuing Sikh extremism problem and rising Hindu extremism, both of which, by the way, are covered in my forthcoming book, When Religions Killed. On Christmas Day, an attack later claimed by Islamic State was carried out against the Libyan Foreign Ministry in Tripoli. A combined firearms and suicide bomber assault killed three and wounded 19. Libya has been riven with terrorist attacks and a resilient Islamic State affiliate since the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. Despite U.S. President Trump's declaration of victory over Islamic State and the destruction of much of the terrorist group's former territory and influence, there is seemingly no end to attacks in Iraq by this erstwhile king of the terrorist heap. Here's a chilling quote from an Iraqi news source. Baghdad is the scene of frequent blasts from booby-trapped vehicles, IEDs, and explosive belts, in addition to separate attacks on civilians and security forces. Nor do the rumors of peace talks between the United States and the Taliban in Afghanistan mean that terrorism has ended in that unfortunate nation. Here's a sample of the killing over the past two weeks in those two nations. On December 25th, Islamic State claimed a car bomb in the northern Iraqi city of Talafar that killed two and wounded 11. Islamic State terrorists killed two Iraqi soldiers and wounded two others in Diyala province on December 31st. A senior police chief was amongst the casualties of a bombing in northeastern Afghanistan province of Tahar on December 31st. And in 2018, Iraq claimed it had sentenced a total of 616 foreigners who had connections to Islamic State, so-called foreign fighters. On December 27th, Swedish police arrested three men that accused of procuring and storing large amounts of chemicals and other equipment with the intention of carrying out a terrorist attack. Those three individuals, along with three more people, are also suspected of sending money from Sweden to be made available for IS activities abroad. Sweden is rarely in the headlines when it comes to terrorism. The most notable recent plot was a vehicle ramming in Stockholm in April 2017, in which a failed Uzbek asylum seeker, Rahmat Akilov, who had expressed support for Islamic State, killed five and wounded 14 people. Each end of the year, the Nigerian president makes an address in which he invariably announces that the terrorist group Boko Haram which had carried out its campaign of violence primarily in that nation's northeastern sector, has been defeated or is almost defeated. And every year the group kills more and more people, kidnaps girls to be used as suicide bombers, and destroys villages. 
this two-week period was no exception, alas. Boko Haram fought Nigerian troops near a fishing town on Lake Chad as the insurgents stepped up attacks in the run-up to presidential elections. Local residents say that 10 people had been killed in an attack on a military base in Baga. The town was the scene of mass killings by Boko Haram militants in 2015 when hundreds and possibly thousands of people died and much of the town was destroyed. There's still some uncertainty as to which group seized the town as the Islamic State affiliate in West Africa has also staked its claim. During the week of Christmas alone, Boko Haram terrorists driving 10 military vehicles seized six towns in Borno State. And hundreds of Nigerians fled to Maiduguri, the capital of Borno, to seek refuge from Boko Haram attacks and atrocities. Some governments have policies whereby they strip citizenship from those accused of carrying out or planning acts of terrorism. This is exactly what Australia has done to Neil Prakash, long a thorn in the side of Australian counterterrorism agencies for his involvement in extremism. Although born in Melbourne, Prakash's mother is Cambodian and his father Fijian. He is currently in a Turkish prison after having fled Islamic State territory in 2016. Citizenship can be revoked normally only in the case of dual citizens. The state cannot make someone stateless. I have two minds on this issue. While I understand the desire to punish terrorists, I also believe that those radicalized in our countries are our problem, and we cannot deport our problem away. Prakash was born in Australia, and his journey to terrorism supposedly took place there. Hence, he's a homegrown jihadi. Besides, where should he go after or when he gets out of, a tur- of Turkish custody? Fiji or Cambodia? Two nations he's never lived in? Who decides? What if Fiji or nor Cambodia wants to take him? This debate will continue. And finally, let's talk about Trinidad and Tobago. So quick, what comes to mind when you think of those islands? If anything, probably just another idyllic Caribbean paradise, right? Well, think again. Trinidad and Tobago is the home of one of the highest per capita number of fighters for Islamic State. Yes, Trinidad and Tobago. At least 100 citizens are suspected of having left their country to join Islamic State, and two of those have found their way onto the U.S. Treasury Department's sanctions list. And a third is the recipient of a specially designated terrorist award. Wouldn't it be great to get that award? Trinidad and Tobago's ties to terrorism run deep. Way back in 1992, two men from that country who were living in Canada were arrested on suspicion of planning to bomb a Hindu theater and temple in Toronto. They were tried, convicted, incarcerated, and later deported back to their homeland. Well, that's it for the first episode of an intelligent look at terrorism. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you think, good, bad, or otherwise. And make sure you subscribe to receive notices of of upcoming podcasts. I'll talk to you again in a fortnight. Until then, stay safe.